Zephaniah. Zephaniah is uh, among the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And when you get to the very end of the Old Testament, you find a group of writings that they call the minor prophets. And it's not, uh, they're not minor in that their message is unimportant, uh, but they're smaller than Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, some of the other writings that would uh, be considered in the books, books of prophets. So turn to Zephaniah, or on your device, if you want to uh, find it there. That's probably the fastest way to find Zephaniah in the Old Testament, is on your phone. But uh, we're going to begin in the third chapter, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 20. Last week we talked about the idea of being refined by the Messiah, and uh, this week we're going to talk about being restored by the Messiah. If you're unfamiliar with Advent as a concept to describe the season that we're in, it just the word means coming, appearance. So when Jesus appeared, it, uh, we call that the first Advent. His first appearance was when Jesus became a human being, when God took on flesh. And so the minor prophets often would give us glimpses uh, of what that meant. And so when we look at these passages, what we're seeing is a foretelling of what we experience as a current reality, the fact that Jesus came here to this earth and the reason behind that. And so in Zephaniah, beginning with uh, chapter 3, verse number 14, the scripture there says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. And so daughter of Zion is Jerusalem in this passage, if it's unfamiliar. And he uses parallelism in the first uh, verse that we're reading here, which means that he strengthens each line with repetition. uh, repetition. So when he says here, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, it's really a reference to the same people. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The people of God, the focal point of their worship is Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. This is the reason for their, their rejoicing. And for ours, because the Lord has taken away the judgments against them and against us. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. The writer says, you shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all of your or all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this clear truth that you've given. And for this writer who hundreds of years before Christ arrived gave us a glimpse into what it would mean for him to live here 
in the first century to live and to have a, a life that informs and changes us these thousands of years later. So we pray that you'll speak to us from this holy text, God, this word that you've given, so that we are changed and, God, our lives are encouraged and, and we know you, not only about you, but that we know you and are brought near to you. And we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we read the Minor Prophets, it's, we always need a, a little context. And we've seen one of the Minor Prophets already who overlaps in the time frame that we're uh, seeing here. So there is a context for his writing that is important to his time and to understanding uh, the message that we'll unpack today. Zephaniah was a prophet at the early stages of King Josiah. If you remember not last week, but the week before, we talked about Josiah, who was godly and who was a passionate reformer of worship in Israel and whom God used. His uh, grandfather, Manasseh, was wicked and uh, instituted foreign worship. We've said Israel was given to uh, the world by God originally. He made a nation where there was no nation. He said to Abraham, out of you or from you, I'm going to give descendants so plenteous that if you could try to count all the stars in, in the sky at night, you couldn't count them all. Or if you went to the beach and tried to count each grain of sand, you could never, uh, you, know, you know, wrap your brain around the number of descendants that you'll have. So he takes this uh, one man, Abraham, and from him he creates this uh, nation, uh, Israel. And his intent was eventually to bring through that nation the Messiah. Who, who we worship. And so Manasseh is a part of that story that he confuses and confounds the worship of God by leading the people to idolatry. Manasseh himself is captured by the Assyrian king and taken off into captivity. And while he's in captivity, he has a change of heart and he's humbled and he repents. He changes his mind. And he realizes he's dishonored God. And he is released from captivity. He goes back to Jerusalem. And while he's there, he attempts to effect reform, but he dies. And after him, his son Ammon returns the people to the wicked worship of Milcom and Baal. And he introduces idolatry so that their worship is compromised and Eventually, these same people are going to be taken captive. So that's the period of time that we're in. It's before the captivity of Judah to Babylon. That's when he, he wrote. So again, the thing that impresses me when I think about the minor prophets is that we're looking at hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus actually came, and they, they speak with such clarity when we understand the events that they they foretell and the, the ability that God gave them. And, and we've talked about that before, how God's personality is, that he is not limited. You're, you're finite. You have an expiration date. So do I. You have a beginning and an end, but he has no beginning and he has no end. When the Bible talks about him as Alpha and Omega, that's what it means. He doesn't have a beginning. He always has been. He is first before all things, and he has no end. He is infinite, but we're finite, we're limited. And when we think about who, who God is and what he intended to 
do it was to create a, a kingdom, a nation of worshiping people. And when Zephaniah speaks, he is right in the middle of a bunch of brokenness. You know, it's like the world that we're a part of now. When you look around, we're often right in the middle of a, of a lot of brokenness. A lot of times it's like in our family. Sometimes it's in us. But the world was broken because of sin. And the scripture says that, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so Messiah was coming because there was a need for Messiah to come. And so in the middle of their rebellion, he speaks out a message of hope for the future. He says there's hope. And, and there, there's coming a day when I, when I read this several times this week. It's just three chapters. And um, so I read it three or four times and what started to form there was a really obvious pattern. He, in the first two chapters and part of the third chapter, he says, on that day, on that day, on that day, he keeps uh, that refrain, on that day, what day? The day that I will visit you in judgment. The day that I'm going to punish you on account of your rebellion. He's speaking to these people, to the Israelites in the, uh, the hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. But it changes when we read this passage. He uses the same phrase, but he's talking about a different day. On that day, what day? The day when I'll restore your hope. The day when I'll forgive you. The day when I'll take your punishment. The day when it, I'll wear your shame. The day when I'll be alienated for you. That day he's talking about. So there, there's a day of punishment, but there's a day when, when the, there's a tipping point and Christ comes and he becomes for us all of that. He visits in himself our judgment and our weakness and he takes all those things for us. And that's what salvation, when we understand it in the scriptural idea, is. It is God taking on him our just punishment so that we could be connected and made right with him. I was reading the Gospel of Luke and I have been reading through Luke in my own Bible reading time. And uh, it's interesting as we think about these people at one point, if you remember during Josiah's reign, had stopped observing Passover. They had let go of all of the religious festivals that God had given them to observe. But when I read about the first century when Jesus came, they were observing Passover again. That because the Bible says when Jesus was a boy, his family had gone to Jerusalem for fast Passover, and it seemed like they traveled in caravans, and when they started back home, you remember his parents couldn't find Jesus. You know, he's like 12 years old, and they're like, they start looking for him among the company of people who are traveling. He's nowhere to be found. So they have to turn around and go back to Jerusalem, and they look for him, the Bible says, for three days. And on the third day, they find him conversing with the religious teachers in the temple. And his, this is what Mary says to Jesus at that time. Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? You know, that would have gotten me a spanking at 12 years old, I'm pretty sure. But for them, they, they see Jesus, he's a prodigy. At 12 years old, he astounds the religious teachers by his wisdom and knowledge. 
Of course he does. He's God. He's God as a little boy, which is mind-blowing to begin with. God as a little boy conversing with these elderly religion teachers in the temple, blowing their minds as a 12-year-old, blowing his parents' mind at the same time. You know, we sing this song, uh, the song that earlier Mary did you know. It's a good question. The uh, theology geeks make memes that make fun of that song all the time on uh, social media. You know, there's, of course Mary knew. But here's what the Bible constantly says about Mary is that she stored these things up in her heart and she pondered them. She had been told all these things, but it's one thing to be told them and another thing to live them in successive moments. And that's what she was doing. She's living these things out in successive moments. And so, yes, she knew, but then she sees and experiences and lives out that reality. And I think that for Mary and Joseph, they had to keep circling back again and again to the things that had been said to them as they're raising this unusual child, unusual to say the least, completely unique, the son of, the son of God given to them. They had stepped into a world that exceeded any fiction they could possibly imagine. I love how Michael Card says that. I've quoted this a bunch of times, but he says, There's no fiction as fantastic and wild as a mother made by her own child. The helpless babe that cried was God incarnate and man deified. And he says, That is a mystery. That's a mystery. Profound. Astounding. And that's the, the story of Christmas is Jesus coming into the world, entering the world. And the thing that ties these ideas together, Zephaniah, out here in the middle of all this messed up, broken idolatry, to the first century where at least they had started to do Passover again. There had been some reform. There had been some steps toward the uh, worship of God. And then God appears. God comes onto the scene. And the Bible describes his arrival this way in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, when the fullness of time was come, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born under the law, born of a woman, born under the law. So those were the circumstances. God looked at all of history from outside of history, and he goes, right now, at this intersection, at this moment, it's when Messiah is to come, and that's what Zephaniah is talking about and why it's important to wade through what feels like a difficult text if you're reading it. It feels difficult, but when we read the Bible, what we see is God's got this overarching story that he's been telling, a narrative that he's been writing into the fabric of human history. And so you get to... The first century, and this is, God says, now it's the perfect time for the Messiah to come. And Zephaniah shows us that it was an occasion of restoration. And so there are two aspects to what we'll see in this passage. One is Jerusalem being restored after the exile. That's their restoration. It happened for them, and it's being discussed in this passage. But there's a second aspect of it that is for the, those people who m knew and met Jesus and us. And that is the advent, the coming of the Messiah. So both of those things are in this text. 
their restoration after the exile, after they had been uh, held captive and then had been released. Maybe not them, but their grandchildren or children who got to come back after the Babylonian captivity. And then for us, this, uh, this, this narrative about the Messiah. And so what I want to help us think about from the passage are uh, three benefits that we see. What, what is it? Why is Christ coming beneficial to you, to me? So the first one that we see from the passage is that our judge has become our advocate. Our judge has become our advocate. That's why you get this transition where he tells them, you are to shout, you're to sing, you're to lift up your voices in praise. Why? Because your judgment has been taken away. Your judgment has been taken away. So there are two applications, one for them, one for us, because not only were they under judgment, but we are. Because the Bible says, when it says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Bible also says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, alienation, separation from God. God is holy. The Scripture teaches throughout. One of the characteristics or traits of God is that He's holy. And, and anybody that pays any attention to their internal life knows that you have often not only disappointed and come short of God's glory, but you disappoint yourself. You struggle, you fail. If there's a standard to be attained, none of us are equal to it. Not consistently, not always. And the, and the Bible depicts over and over again that is transgression, sin is missing the mark. And everybody misses the mark. I like to say I never lose my temper. I don't hold resentments or, I, you know, that I, you know, never say things I shouldn't say. Or that I, I'd like to say, you know, I always do everything I should do all the time. But, but, of course, I'd be a liar if I said that. You know, the truth is nobody is like that. Nobody. And, and, you know, when we sit and think about the way our life is, if there is a God who is holy and who is perfect and has a standard, the Bible says that is God, and it says we, are, we don't come up to that standard, none of us. And so something has to be done about that because God is just and righteous. He is a judge. You know, we live at a time where we don't want to judge, you know, and, and there's a a truth to what the Bible says that we shouldn't judge each other necessarily. However, God has the right to judge people. He is the, the appropriate and only appropriate ultimate judge. And the Bible says that it, it, if you read it and you, you don't come away with the conclusion that there is a time of accounting for your life, you haven't read it thoroughly. Because when you read the Bible thoroughly you come away with the conclusion that there is a time of accounting for your life. And, but the greater truth in Scripture is there's hope for every single person because Jesus came. Our biggest barrier is removed. And salvation turns dejected people, broken, hurting people, into people who have a reason for praise. He, he puts a song. I always loved the 40th Psalm. Psalm chapter 40 says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard me. And it says, he lifted me up out of the miry clay, and he put my feet on solid ground, and he put a song in my heart. 
praise to our God, it says, many will see it and fear or be turned to God. So that's the powerful thing that God does for us. When we realize what salvation means, it means I was on a collision course with judgment, that I was going to stand before a holy God, but with no plea, with no way of saying, God, I did enough to justify allowing you, uh, my, you allowing me to be in, you know, in heaven with you and to have a life with you. I had no, no reason for hope and except that Jesus came and took on himself my punishment and your punishment. And so he, he, his deliverance turns an enemy into a worshiper, puts a song into our heart and our, and our, that comes out of our mouth, and that's a radical transformation. I've shared before, you know, I came to faith in Jesus when I was 24 years old, and I remember every holiday like Christmas, my parents always invite me to church you know when I, I wanted nothing to do with it I was working six days a week and the seventh day I wanted to sleep or do whatever I wanted and my my parents would you know invite me and I would go out you know out of grudging obligation to Mother's Day and Easter and you know Christmas and and but I didn't want to until I reached a point in my life where my brokenness caused me to cry out to God for help and he began to transform my desires so that my parents never had to invite me to church again you know once i've surrendered my life to christ and i came to him and i experienced forgiveness and was given a new start it it became for me an impulse to worship god and i think that's what the scripture is trying to say to us here is that salvation means that we're made glad we're made glad because we Realize that the path that we're on has been uh, uh, rever- You know, it's been changed. It's been we've been given hope. You, we were captives, enslaved, alienated, just like they were. But in Jesus, we have been restored and cleansed and forgiven and brought into God's family. If that's true of us, He's taken away the judgment against us and has cleared away our enemies. That's what the text says. So what were the enemies that we anticipated? Condemnation? Scripture says it's gone. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Guilt? Well, we have that if we're guilty, right? But it's atoned for. He atoned for our guilt. He became a sin offering. That's the cross. That's what Jesus did. His his, uh, replacement, his death for us uh, became the way that your guilt is atoned. It's washed clean death physical death the bible says conquered how through resurrection because he died for us and he was raised from the dead on our behalf listen to the scripture in first uh, corinthians chapter 15 oh death where is your sting oh hades or grave where is your victory the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ the bible says the grave the grave's power has been overcome through jesus satan is defeated and our lives have been given this freedom hell has been vanquished we've been acquitted that's the word justified cleared who did this well the scripture says here the lord did that he's the one who did that it's the lord who 
uh, is, your, is in your midst, and the Lord is the one who's taken away. Look at uh, verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, and those are the judgments. We couldn't do this through self-will or self-effort or self-improvement. You know, I used to think about turning over a new leaf. You know, I knew that the way my life was was not commendable or good. I'm going to turn over a new leaf, but what I needed was a new life. And that's what I eventually found was not a new leaf, not just change of habits, but a, a change of my whole identity is understanding that I was someone who God loved enough to give his son for and finding a new identity and a whole new life. If anyone is in Christ, the Bible says he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. We, we have the opportunity to experience a, a new life. We were powerless to save ourselves. It's the gift of God, the Bible says. That's what salvation is. And the writer Paul in 2 Corinthians says, Thanks be unto God for his indescribable gift. No way I can fully appreciate the gift that's come to me in, in Jesus. So what are the benefits? How, what does re restoration really mean? Well, the first thing that it means is that the only person who really can righteously judge us became our advocate and our Savior. That was why he came. That's why he was born the way he was. But secondly, the scripture makes it clear that our God has come to us. Our God has come to us. It says that two different times in this passage, that your God, it says, is in your midst. Your God is in your midst. And there are two uh, ideas about what that means in these verses, verses 15 through 17. One, he, he's in your midst to support you. To support you, uh, let's look at the scripture again. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The king of uh, Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Interesting. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you. He will quiet you. He will exult over you which is not a word we use all the time. And, and he says, the, these are the benefits. Why, why did God come? To support us. The psalm writer says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The scripture there said, You will never again fear evil. Well, for any thinking person, this should be an oh really moment. I'll never again fear evil. I think we have to clear out what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the implications of living in an evil world will never touch you. Because the truth is, you're living in an evil world, and there are times that it definitely will touch your life directly or through uh, addiction in the lives of people that we care about or through violence toward people that we love. You know, my son and his wife live in Ackworth, Georgia, and about three, four weeks ago, uh, their home, not their home, the home of a young couple in their community was broken into, and the parents were murdered, and a little baby was left alive in that home. That doesn't sound like a world where, you know, wickedness never touches anybody. And, and you know, everybody, if we thought about it, 
you know, can relate horrible stories about the world that we're a part of. Here's what the Scripture is saying to us, that Christ stands between you and the ultimate goal of the evil one. It's not that you don't live in a world where the implications of evil aren't real. The implications of injustice don't happen. You know, that uh, things that we would never worst, uh, wish on the worst people don't, don't still happen to uh, people. It's unrealistic to think that we could live in a world turned upside down by wickedness and not ever be touched by wickedness or affected by it. But it's not unrealistic to understand that God will never leave us or forsake us, which is exactly what he tells us in the Scripture, that he'll be with us to help us through our battles and our struggles. The Lord is in our midst. We're not abandoned. God is not distant or disinterested so this goes to your own personal theology of God which should always be informed by scripture what is God like well the Bible says that he's not as even some of our founders thought they thought that they were they were described as deist they believed that God wound up the universe set it in motion and was impersonal from that point forward but that's not what the Bible teaches about God it teaches instead that he's personal and that he, he's in our stuff, all our broken, hurting uh, things. I've related before this conversation I had with someone where, you know, this, the person was deeply turned out, uh, off about the idea of God and, you know, related to me a lot of, you know, some issues in his own, own life. Of His wife was in a facility with dementia. His, his uh, mother had died of cancer and you know, he kind of was holding those things as a grudge against God. And it was the first time it ever occurred to me to ask somebody, have you ever considered that God feels exactly the same way about those things that you feel about those things? That he's not glad for uh, the brokenness in the world. It is a consequence of sin and it's outworking in, uh, in, the, in the world. And when we read the Bible, these are the kind of things that we see God saying about how he relates to and cares for us. So he, he's, he came to us to support us and to strengthen us. And he strengthens us in our work. It, it says here, don't let your hands become weak. Don't let your hands become weak. The scripture says in Galatians 6, 9, that we should, it says, don't grow weary in well-doing. Don't uh, grow weary in well-doing, for at just the right time you'll reap if you don't lose heart. Don't grow weary in, in well-doing. In other words, it's difficult to keep doing the right thing in a, a world like ours. It always will be. But the Bible says you patiently continue to do what uh, is right by, in, in the Lord's eyes, and at the right time there will be a harvest. It may not be today. It may not be in your lifetime. But there'll be a harvest, or it may be. The scripture says also in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Those two verses are fuel for me all the time in my, in my life. They remind me that on difficult days, I'm still to be faithful to God. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor in the Lord is not, is not in vain. 
there's work to be done for God's kingdom. You know, you, you weren't created just to fulfill your own desires and just to do to live life on your terms. You were created to worship and serve the Lord. All the people in the scripture that we see that uh, were a, a reflection of the kind of human that God created a human to be were people that worship and serve the Lord and that, whose lives drilled down into, into that. So don't let your hands grow weak. I have a friend who you know, said one time, I don't need a break, I need a breakthrough. You know, I feel that way sometimes. I don't need a break, but I do need a breakthrough. And, and the scripture says you're, you're to keep your hand to the, to the things that God says matter. There's going to be a day when we're very clear about what mattered and what didn't. You know, one day we're going to stand before God, we're going to be in the presence of God, and we'll know for certain what categories of things in our life really were uh, important and w those that, that weren't important. And so we don't stop doing that which will really matter in eternity. We need our hands to be strengthened, the Scripture says. But he, he strengthens us in our work and he strength strengthens us in our worry, in our worry. <coughs> the Bible says, and we experience the world as a place that's, uh, I don't, the Bible doesn't say this, we live in a place that is designed to heighten our anxiety, I think, especially as the, in these days. The era we live in seems like it's engineered to induce stress. Does anybody experience the world that way, or is it just me? Uh, you know, most people would say they don't have enough margin in their life. In other words, there's not enough time for us to rest. People doom scroll. Are you familiar with that phrase? doom scrolling it's like you put your face in your phone and you you know you find one horrible news story after another and then we you know we do that we ingest all this bad news all the time and then we wonder why we feel so bad you know doom scrolling it's called uh, we we're overcommitted and often spiritually undernourished it's like a friend said uh, have you ever been so busy driving around that you forgot to get gas? You know, I've done that before. But that's the pace of life for a lot of people. It feels like we're so busy driving around that we forget, oh, I also need to get gas. And yet we, when we turn to Christ, this is what his promise is to us. He saves us. He delivers us. He gives us a foundational way to understand life that I can always go back to. It's my reset. You know, if I lose sight of, of any of this, I can go back and realize, no, my life has uh, been given. It has the imprint of God in it for purpose. He, he saves us. He silences our anxiety. You know, I don't know, you know, because I haven't lived at other times of history, but I do know that there's a lot of anxiety. It characterizes people in these days. And I, th I think at our best, if we're followers of Christ, we remember that these are the promises he makes to us. When I was reading this, I was like blown away. He sings over us. I don't even know how to give a category to that in experience, to the idea that this is what God says. He exalts over you with singing. I don't, know what, I don't even know what it means exactly. I know it sounds pretty good. The idea that God would exalt over us with singing. 
I, I know it sounds, it's probably the opposite of the idea that God heaps shame on people. It sounds, you know, different than that. Uh, whatever it is, I think we should probably let it in, you know, to think about that's what God is like toward us. He sings over us. It sounds like something better than good. And it says he quiets us by his love. And there's a kind of tenderness in understanding God's personality here that is deeply meaningful. If we'll let ourselves enter that, this is what God came to do. In, in restoration, he has come to us to support us and to strengthen us and, and especially to help us in our anxiety. And some of this sounds like it's going to have to happen in uh, rest, in, in uh, taking time to pray, to journal, to think, to do all the things you're way too busy to do, right? Unless we want to encounter God, unless we want to experience this, this God who says, hey, if you could just slow down for a little while, this is really what I'm like. This is really what I'll do. So our God has come to us, and then another benefit, lastly, in this passage is that our longing has met its answer. Uh, verses 18 through 20, there it says, I will gather those of you who mourn for festival." It's describing a longing that, is, that a person has, our emptiness being filled. There was a remnant of people in the world at this time who longed for the world to be put together again under God's intended order. And he was there for that. God says, yep, I'll show up and do that. You're mourning for something. Sometimes people have a nostalgic longing for some pristine memory uh, Glory days, that's what we call them. Boy, why were the, the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, why were the former days better than these days? That's nostalgia. And the answer that the writer says there is, you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Why were the former days better than this? You do not inquire wisely concerning that. It's the commentary for the, from the writer in Ecclesiastes. In other words, he says, what you should be asking for instead of glory days is a present experience of God. That's what you should want. Because God says, I'll show up right here and right now, in this moment. And that's what he, he is making a promise of to these people. Not glory days, but he says, you're mourning for the festival. You think about when Passover used to happen, I'll be Passover. I'll show up now. Right here in this moment for you and living your life. You don't have to look back for something that used to happen. You can have it now, he says to them. He'll fill up the emptiness in a life. They wanted life aligned to the true God. And that's a good thing to want. And, and he says, I'll do that. C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that i was made for another world here's what he's saying how it pertains to this is that that even the best moments that we have in life leave us longing there's a longing guess what it's never going to be thoroughly satisfied in this life because you're made for a life that is is much more than this life is currently but our emptiness is still filled. That's what I've found. 
that I, I have a resource that I didn't have before I became a worshiper. And our estrangement has been reversed. These people had been oppressed by foreigners, and God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to restore your fortunes. Where you've been oppressed, if you read through the Bible, what you find is Cyrus, the Persian, God uses Cyrus to issue a decree for these people that gives them permission legally to go back and rebuild the city. You read Nehemiah, there's a king called Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes writes a decree. They, they keep re- recalling that these leaders, these, God has reversed their fortunes where these people were cap, uh, capturing them and oppressing them. Now God has taken those foreign leaders and used them as instruments to give them a homeland again. Their estrangement is reversed and their... Uh, Ability to return to Jerusalem has been greenlit by these uh, foreigners. And so that's what Jesus does for us, too. He turns our alienation into belonging. I used not to belong. Now I belong. I used to be an outsider because of my uh, decision to reject God. But, but I repented, and he made me an insider. He put me in his family. And it all, to those who receive him, the Bible says to them... Uh, he gave the authority to become children of God. You, gotta, you have to receive him. We have to stop with our rebellion and our rejection, and we have to open up our life to surrender, to surrender, to put down our arms and stop being rebels and recognize that that's beating your head against the wall anyway. And the last thing this passage says, our separate lives have been turned into community in verse 20 because he keeps talking about gathering them. Gathering, 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 that's the word. He says, your separate life, where you're trying to live life and do it your way, he says, I want to turn into community. That's the beautiful... In fact, when I read the last part of Zephaniah, he gives us a textbook definition of church. This is church. This is why you need it, because it is the connecting point for life. For a believer, you can't have spiritual life and live it the way God intends without being connected to people in community. This is God's purpose, and it's spelled out in the Old Testament and New Testament. That He says, I'm going to gather you together. A church is a people who share a common covenant life. That we, we, a covenant is a promise and agreement that we make, that we're going to bless and honor one another and that we're going to pray for one another and you know we should go probably at some point in the coming year we'll look at the covenant i think you guys probably have done that when jim was here maybe we're going to do it again it's a good reminder what is what am i agreeing to when i become part of christian community i'm i hold my word forth in respect to you my brother my sister that i'm going to follow through in these ways church community you know, God says, I'm going to gather you, and, and if we don't honor it, we're missing the benefit, but we're also missing out on our obligation to others. A church is a people who share a common covenant life. It's a, uh, it helps us focus our energy on the life and mission of God. I love, like, something that happened over the last few weeks where God put it in the heart of one member of this church. I'm not saying others uh, wouldn't have had the same impulse, but one member had an impulse that they said, I'm going to 
seek out a family in this community that I can be a blessing to. I didn't decide that or think it up, you know. This member said, I'm going to do that. Sought out an opportunity, and then what happened? All the other members were like, man, we're in. We want to be a blessing. We don't even know who this person is, but we want to bless them. You know, to me, that is like such an amazing God thing. But it's what church should look like all the time. Us deciding, hey, how can we bless people outside, people inside? And he says, I'm gathering you. I'm gathering you because the gathering of you matters. It's not something to be indifferent about. It's of utmost importance in the life of a Christ follower. A church helps us put our lives in harmony with others despite our obvious differences. I've taken a big pause on social media lately. I'm not off of it, but I took the like an app off my phone because I'm like, man, I hate how it makes me feel. And, and sometimes it's like differences, you know. Everybody should think like me, right? If everybody thought like me, the world would be perfect. But, of course, we don't. You know, and what we find when we get into community is there are differences that we have. However, God called us to love and, and uh, encourage and bless each other, even when we don't see perfectly eye to eye on everything. The polarization of the world should be the, the world, you know, but not us. We need to find ways to live together to honor Christ even in our uh, differences. And help, the church helps us to learn to live as Jesus followers and then scatter into the world to live on mission for him, to take our lives and to use them as servants to Christ wherever we go. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in, uh, within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I love Psalm 103, the whole thing, but it reminds us that coming into connection with God means that we're, we're blessed. There are benefits that, that are ours because of our connection to him i didn't know when i first became a follower of christ all that this meant i just knew that my sin debt was so big i could never repay it and that someone else paid it for me and i came to him for uh, forgiveness but what i find is that as i follow christ and i read scripture i see that there is so much more uh, than what i knew about be, being a, a, a believer in jesus christ that I'm incredibly blessed. And it may be that for some of us, our understanding is limited by anxiety or our understanding is limited by shame when those are the very things that God came to transform about our understanding. He, that, that's exactly where he says, hey, I'll get right in the middle of that stuff if you'll let me. In the midst of our stressing and obsessing, that's where his power hits home. In our overthinking and overextending, he's able to quiet and calm our hearts, which is exactly what he promises. So the celebration of Advent, I read that uh, this just this week. This is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, 
German theologian. He says, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. He is and always will be now with us in our sin, in our suffering, and at our death. We are no longer alone. God is with us and we are no longer homeless, he says. I want to pray for us and we'll have a a song to conclude our service. And this is a time of commitment. And it may be that as you've listened, there's a response that you feel like God is leading you to make. And if he is uh, speaking to you about some positive change in your life, I can guarantee you that is not the devil. If there's something that you need to do, I'd encourage you to respond to to God. It may be you want to talk with me and I can pray with you now or at the conclusion of the service. I'd be happy to do that, but let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for how it uh, shows us the, um, the way that you have been at work throughout the history of people, the great care you've taken to leave us a record of your heart and mind and what you're like. And I pray, God, that for us, we'll be able to conform our lives more and more to what you're like. And we love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.